Welcome to the Album Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Andy, Don, and Dude. Mama say, mama sama makusa, gentlemen. And mama say, mama sama makusa to you all. It's the Album Nerds Podcast. I'm Dude. I got Andy and Don with me. Hey, guys. And also with you, yeah, buddy. Thank you. Thank you very much. Andy, what's up? You know, um, if my face ever appears on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine, I hope it's because we finally delivered the perfect album review and they want to commemorate it for all time. Sounds good. We should be able to <laughs> smash that. <laughs> <laughs> should be on next week. Of course, you have to be naked. That's, right. That's, that's, that's the go-to. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have to wear, I'd have to wear pasties. I don't really want to reveal. You could have somebody's <laughs> hands covering your nipples. Of course. Maybe mine. Yeah. <laughs> I'd, ra- <laughs> I'd rather not. <laughs> I think it'd be cooler if it was like a dog's paws. Oh, yeah. oh there you go. Because I'm an animal lover. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, that got weird. We got Don here. Donnie. You likey? Thank you for for letting me be part of the podcast. (laughs) You're welcome. Okay, so if the awkwardness is over, let's move on to what we do here. We're the album nerds. Oh, Oh, I know. There'll be more. We love albums. We talk about them, and we have a great show for you today. We're going to each pick an album based on a topic. We're going to answer a question. We're going to talk about what we learned on the show, and then we're going to spin the Wheel of Musical Destiny once again to find out what kind of albums we'll talk about on the next one. But this week, it's all about those artists that appeared on the cover of The Rolling Stone. That's what I'm talking about! Rolling Stone is an American monthly magazine that focuses on music, politics, and popular culture. It was founded in San Francisco, California in 1967 by Jan Wenner and Ralph Gleason. Uh, the cover has featured musicians, politicians, actors, comedians, sports figures, and even fictional characters uh, over the years. The Beatles, as individuals and uh, as a band, ha- have appeared over 30 times. Madonna has the honor of being featured the most of any female artist with uh, a total of 23 times. So today, each of us will present an album from an artist who is featured on the cover of Rolling Stone. Now, sometimes those those counts may be inflated some because Madonna may have been, or U2 or anything, could have been, sometimes they have 50 photos yeah, on the cover. The collage. Mm-hmm. Yes. Wow, you always got to freaking show off, Professor. <laughs> they have a bunch of pictures glued together. And uh, that can that can <laughs> that that counts, but yeah, it was uh, interesting looking at at these and remembering some of the covers. So I looked at some. I wanted to get into the '80s, so I was looking at Bon Jovi, "Slippery When Wet," George Michael, "Faith," Van Halen, "1984," and then I dipped into the '90s a little bit. REM, "Automatic for the People," but Pearl Jam, Metallica, Nirvana, The Doors, John Lennon. I kind of like just crossed off my list because. I always want to talk about about those things. So yeah, I stretched out a little bit, and then I ended up coming right back to where it all started. So we'll get into that in a bit. How'd you guys do? 
Yeah, this is one of those, you know, big sprawling topics here. Lots of artists have been featured, obviously. I went to try to find some of the more, like, iconic classic covers, I guess, was my thought. So, uh, The Doors were on, or Jim Morris, I should say, was on, on cover number five back in 68. So, I listened to some other first few records, Big Brother and the Holding Company, you know, Janis Joplin was featured on a few covers in the late 60s as well. And I did a few things in the 90s. You had, like, Kanye West, Rage Against the Machine. A lot of, like, controversial artists made appearances on the Rolling Stone cover. Sometimes I like to steer away from those because they're a little too rot with controversy for my taste. Yeah, I also, I, I thought of Jim Morrison first and... Um I don't remember what you if you guys had done a lot of Doors before I joined the the podcast, but we we haven't done a, a Doors album yet since since I've been on board. So I thought about you know pulling out L.A. Woman. Um, also, um, Ian Anderson from Jethro Tull was was on the cover uh, in 1971. So I I spent some time with uh, Thick as a Brick. I'm still not sure what to what to think about that album. Maybe that's something yeah, we'll, I, <laughs> we'll revisit. <laughs> that's a they're tough. I like, think so too. Jethro Tull is an enigma. Yeah. yeah, there's some great moments on their records, but yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, another one I thought about uh, was um, the Cars. Candy O mm-hmm. is uh, is a good album. So I, I think one of these days I'll, I'll end up uh, talking about that one. So yeah, Rolling Stone magazine, a lot to uncover. Mm-hmm. Let's get to it. You. Choo choo choose me? So from our Rolling Stone cover selection here, we're talking about Sex Pistols. You little punk! And their 1977 album, Nevermind the Bullocks. Here's the Sex Pistols. Let's play a little bit of the debut single, Anarchy in the UK. Can we start calling this the album nerds podcaster instead? <laughs> I have a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That, of course, is Johnny Rotten and his famous enunciation. Uh, he was on the cover of issue number 250 back in October of 1977. Pretty great photo of him screaming his eyeballs out as he tends to do. Nevermind the Bullocks was the debut and only studio album for the four-piece punk rock group from London, England. The original bassist, Glenn Matlock, left the, the group early in the recording process and was replaced by Sid Vicious. Well, didn't, wasn't he a Southern attorney that had to go solve mysteries wearing a white suit? <laughs> 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 I understand leaving the band, but Matlock just doesn't really fit. <laughs> yeah, if you had to choose between Matlock and Sid Vicious to be in the punk rock group, I, I guess it's pretty clear cut. <laughs> um, yeah, the record was, was fraught with controversy when it was released. It released a bunch of singles before the album came out, built up a lot of, of bad press, I guess, depending on your perspective. There's a few controversies with them, of course, swearing on live TV and you know pissing off some different groups. And then releasing an album with the word Bullocks in the cover was apparently fairly controversial in the late 70s as well. A lot of record stores wouldn't carry it or wouldn't display it. 
in their storefront windows. Anyway, this record debuted at number one on the UK charts and was pretty popular for the next couple of years in the UK. And it uh, really helped solidify not only this group, but punk rock and kind of like in the UK and in, in the US. Let's contextualize yeah. this, right? This was the disco era was beginning around the same time, right? That's all style and frivolity and emptiness. And this is that basically all of your conventions suck and you're a bunch of sheep, <laughs> right? Yeah. Although, you know... It it turns out that a lot of it was sort of fashion based, you know, because so, all these guys were hanging out in a clothing store, you know, so like punk rock was also very much like a, a fad and a, and a fashion. Right. At least yes. in the, the British end of it. Uh, Matthew words to describe this record are God save the bullocks. As you guys are uh, kind of alluding to here, there's a bit of irony to this record. I mean, it's kind of, you know, ignoring... The bullshit, I guess, for lack of a better word, seems to be the the mantra of what they're focused on. But what the record largely deals with, from my perspective, is all the things that they dislike. And they want to destroy it all and tear it all up, but there really isn't any sort of idea for what to replace it with. And that doesn't really seem to trouble anybody in the punk rock movement. Uh, always kind of concerned me a little bit. But, you know, that, yeah. that just raw, raucous energy is here in spades. Well, they were going to tear down all the conventions and all of the stuff that they hate, and then they were going to make the people that do it pay to build a wall to keep it from <laughs> from coming back. <laughs> but it didn't work out. Yeah, a lot of political activism here, for sure. A lot of stirring of the pot from this group. Yeah, they have a song, God Save the Queen, but then they're like, no, we're not political. You know? <laughs> right, right. All right, well, why don't we play on cut from the record here? This is a little bit of submission. There's some confusion over what the the definitive track list actually is for this this album. That song there did not appear on, I guess, the original 11 song UK release, but I guess it was offered as a bonus track or or something, but it was on the US version and it was on a a French version. I like that song because it it stands out a bit to me because it just sounds a little different sonically. You know, they're they're changing up the the rhythm. Uh, Otherwise, you know, I think a lot of the songs, you know, are kind of of the same uh, of the same sound uh, the sex pistols were a little more melodic at times and a little more complicated musically than i remember it yeah, me being too. i i remembered it being much more stripped back yeah, yeah, I felt the same way coming back to this. Supposedly, the band's manager, Malcolm McLaren, so he owned this owned this uh, clothing shop called Sex, uh, and he asked Johnny Lydon to, to write a song about sexual submission. But I guess as a joke, the, the band, they ended up writing about a submarine mission. Um, so it's literally about a, a, a submission. Uh, so the, the three words I chose to describe the album are British punk prototype. When I hear the punk, the, the word punk rock, uh, I... Sex Pistols is usually the the thing I, I I think about. I mean, it's all about energy. It's working class, you know, and it's it's meant to be simple, right? Sort of a uh, a reaction against all the progressive stuff out there. You know, your Pink Floyd and Yes and all that stuff. You punk. And, but it also came, I think, you know, bands like the Stooges and Iggy yep. Pop. I think sort of set the tone in MC Five for what what the seed of punk was. So you 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 are 
there's a more aggression than there had been in protest music of the 60s and going into the 70s it was more raw mm-hmm. and these guys these guys took it to another level and lived it much like Iggy Pop did mm-hmm. but because I think they were they were youths and a gang of them, it seemed much more foreboding to the UK public as well as the American public. And uh, you know, I have a a hard time sort of figuring out you know where to put the Sex Pistols. Are they just sort of accidental geniuses or something? You know, like were they just kind of in the right place at the right time? You know, I mean, they're not necessarily mm-hmm. super talented people. Um, although, I mean, you can make a case for, you know, um, Leiden being a good lyricist and stuff like that. But were they lucky or did they sort of see, did they know that the world needed this sound at this time? They're, they're basically the opposite of what they set out to be. So, they're hanging out in Hot Topic, right? And <laughs> the the manager of Hot Topic is like, hey, we should make you into a band. And so they do this thing, railing against conformity and and whatnot. But then he's on the cover of Rolling Stone. They set new fashion trends and trends in music. So therefore, they became exactly what they didn't want to be, which I think is why John Lydon is the real deal. I don't know about the rest of them, but he he walked away. Yeah. Yeah. Just a couple of years after their big breakthrough. All right, why don't we play another cut from the record? This is a little bit of God Save the Queen. I love the rolled R's. That's so funny. You You don't like it when Morrissey does it. (laughs) Morrissey does it to try to sound sexy. (laughs) Yeah, I think they're doing it to try to sound vulgar in most cases. Yeah, that's where it works because it sounds gross, which is what this is supposed to sound like. And (laughs) Morrissey, when he's doing it, you can tell he's looking at himself in a mirror admiringly, (laughs) slowly brushing his sideburns. All right. So, God Save the Queen is really funny to me. I mean, it's the ultimate song where it's like the fascist regime, all this, you know, anti-government stuff. And then even within it, talks about the Queen's a figurehead. And it's like, why aren't you going after Parliament, bro? The Prime Minister would be a better target here. But like, I appreciate this kind of boldness at that time. Like at that time, you didn't really have in popular music, someone making comments about Nixon in a song that anyone knows about, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. the, the three words I use to describe this album are sneering rebellion tunes. It's that sneer it's that rolled r's it's the scuzziness of it i think that makes it one of the first truly punk albums and why it's considered iconic it set the tone for what kind of anger it is it's a judgmental eye rolly sort of anger that comes with punk and uh they kind of set the rules for it so i guess uh shopping can really pay off when you want to go buy some safety pins to put in your cheeks (laughs) (laughs) and what it did what it did, like, it made it on the cover of the Rolling Stone magazine that millions of subscribers saw that started a musical revolution that seeded later musical sounds like grunge and other rock that has punk influences. I mean, it was a Rolling Stone. It started off at the top of the hill and just kept gathering moss on the way down. <laughs> yeah, well, I think for all that influence and, you know, 
just that that big splash it made in the UK and in the US in the late 70s. I'm going to nominate, never mind the books, here's Sex Pistols for the Album Nerds Hall of Fame. What do you guys think? Well, um, yeah, I, I can't deny the, the significance of it. And, you know, it's, it's a fun listen. It's not like a desert island album for me. You know, like I think there's other. Well, <laughs> it was like, I hate the palm trees. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, as far as punk or punk adjacent or pre-punk records, like I'd, I'd rather listen to like the first New York Dolls or maybe the Stooges Raw Power or something. But, but no, I mean, this one is just. I mean, it influenced so many people and it really set the tone. So, uh, I'll say yes. I also will say yes. I already made some of my points in our discussion earlier about why, but, uh, it is too important to ignore. And, you know, I, I think people need to keep that in perspective. Sometimes the great albums are not albums you necessarily love, but you got to recognize. Congratulations to Sex Pistols. Just another feather in their spiky hair. <laughs> I think you'd tell us to fuck off. <laughs> yeah. All right, so that was Never Mind the Bullets. Here's the Sex Pistols. Check it out. You punk! I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. If you're enjoying the show, and we hope you are, do us a solid and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Maybe we made you laugh, or you discovered an album you enjoy. Leaving a review keeps the show going and helps other music fans find us. Tell me something though. When you, I know you're responsible for all the, the music that you do and you that you write it. But do you sit down and write it? Do you sit down, stand up. So on the July 13th, 1970 cover of Rolling Stone was a band called Sly and the Family Stone. And so this is an album that came a year later. Uh, there's a riot going on. Here's the first single from that album, Family Affair. Could you remind me the name of the song? <laughs> so, uh, Family Fair, uh, Family Affair is actually one of the earliest pop recordings to, to feature a drum machine. So, the, mm. the vocals on that track are, are Sly Stone and his sister Rose. Um, also features Electric Piano by uh, Billy Preston. That's actually their last number one uh, song on the U.S. charts. Uh, and it was uh, kind of a, a somber departure from some of their previous hits, you know, like uh, like Everyday People. There's a Riot going on is the fifth studio album by the, the band formed in San Francisco in 1966. The core lineup was led by singer, songwriter, producer, and multi-instrumentalist Sly Stone, uh, born Sylvester Stewart in Denton, Texas in 1943. Uh, his brother and singer guitarist Freddie Stone is in the group. I guess he must have also been Freddie Stewart. And so apparently everybody changed their name. Uh, you've got the aforementioned uh, Rose Stone as a singer and keyboardist. You've got trumpeter Cynthia Robinson, drummer Greg uh, Erico, saxophonist Jerry Martini, uh, and bassist Larry Graham, uh, who I mentioned because he's considered one of the early pioneers of slap bass, you know, which is really like a, you know, an, an integral part of, of funk. 
And the band was the, the first major American rock group to have a racially integrated and, and mixed gender lineup. Much of the album is just done by Sly Stone himself. Um, he's playing a lot of the, a lot of the instruments. Uh, and it features some, some key, uh, guests, Billy Preston, as I mentioned, Ike Turner and, and Bobby Womack. Uh, the three words I chose to describe the album are progressive psychedelic funk. You know, this is really an adventure. It's kind of, you know, pre-funk. They sound like a jam, a jam band at the, at times. You know, there's a couple of moments where I'm like, whoa, am I listening to the, to the Grateful Dead? It's druggy. <laughs> um, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's uh, everything I like, you know, and it's kind of a, I think it's a good cross genre record. You know, if you're going to have people over and you need to play something, you know, it's, I think rock people will like it. People who like soul and funk will, will like it. And, you know, your, your druggy jam band people might like it. Yeah. The one missing element though is recognizable songs. Yeah. Hit songs. Yeah. I guess, I mean, family affair, is, you know, is kind of that. That was the biggest yeah. hit off of it. Yeah. It's got, there's some, a few catchy moments on the record, but I would agree it's not like a, Dustin no. for the top 40 charts or anything. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's hear more. Uh, here's a track called Thank You for Talking to Me, Africa. So, Thank You for Talking to Me, Africa is the final track on the album, and it's very interesting. Uh, this album does have a darker tone than their previous. Uh, it is very funky, and, and that slap bass is very forward. It does have a jammy feel because they're kind of jamming on a song that was previously a hit for them, Thank You, from 1969. Thank you for letting me be myself again. Um, so this song, it definitely has that shift and the tempos are different. The production is more raw, but it's a little more introspective. Thank you for talking to me, Africa. There's some awakening going on in Sly Stone's life as far as his roots pushing some more political sort of agenda, making it clearer stances on segregation and, and other things going on in America and taking a happy hit song and then kind of blending it into this thank you Africa for giving me a chance to talk for giving me my heritage for giving me my talent for you know the things that I have um, I, I really I normally wouldn't like a song being recycled for an album but I think it really works here and and closes out the album uh, strongly the three words I used to describe it are source of funk Experimental production, introspective lyrics, uh, the reflection of turbulent society and the political climate, they're, they're trailblazers. Um, and I think that the appearance, the crazy costumes, that all kind of fed what later came from George Clinton and, and others in the funk space. I think that was the beginning of all of that. It's, it's a special record. Really, all of their albums, there are things that are that you you know are keys to the future. So I really enjoyed listening to this. All right, well, let's hear some more of it then. Uh, here's the opening cut called Love and Hate, and it's actually hate spelled H-A-I-G-H-T, which is a reference to the, the hate Ashbury part of, of San Francisco. definitely enjoy that song there. I enjoy the record as a whole. Three words I used to describe it are Sly and the Family Godstone. (laughs) 
Wait. Oh, I get it. <laughs> yeah, I, I was I've listened to this record a handful of times over the years, mostly in consideration for the show. I think what struck me most this time coming back to it was just how kind of muted and 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 murky the whole record sounds, especially the vocals. His his vocal is very slurred and kind of delivered in like this mumbly fashion, which oh, not always. There are some moments where the choruses come in clear and, and bright, but it's a it's a mumbly record. I think part of it might be the overproduction. So, like, I get the sense that, you know, Sly Stone was basically like alone in a studio and he just kept overdubbing things. And I think that probably deteriorated some of those vocal tracks. But I also, I think you're right, though. I think he's also sort of either because he's in a particular mental state at the time or just because he's, you know, deliberately, you know, trying to, uh, you know, have that effect that, that he's, he's being somewhat mumbly. Yeah. It's not a, not a critique per se, but it's just, I didn't, it's surprisingly consistent throughout the record. So yeah, I mean, I, I definitely enjoy the record, and I appreciate a lot of the grooves they get into, especially on that that closing cut that we played a moment ago. And there are some like really some high points, I guess I would say, like "You Caught Me Smiling" and uh, "Running Away." I think really do stand out as like kind of like bright moments, similar to what Sly was doing earlier in his career. But I don't know. I guess I guess I was more mixed on this than I thought I would be coming back to it after a few years. And I think it mostly comes down to like the production and for me. Okay. Well, despite Andy's sort of lukewarm review uh, of the album, uh, I'm going to be bold and I am going to nominate this for the Album Nerds Hall of Fame. Now, I'm not uh, an expert on the band's uh, discography, uh, but I think if you were to identify a, a masterpiece, I think you would either go with this or the, the previous album, Fresh. Maybe when people think of Sly and the Family Stone, that they might more picture that that sound from from Fresh, which is more that sort of, you know, come together and positivity vibe. I guess I'm just, I'm kind of more drawn to this. I like that it's in that interesting time where people are sort of digesting the the 60s and, and figuring out where to go next. I, I think that's that's really present on this uh, on this record. I think it's up there with you know the the work of Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye uh, in the 1970s, kind of you know pushing this sort of a, a progressive version of of soul, you know, which I like a lot. And then of course it also I think paves the way, um, like Dude said, for Parliament and Funkadelic and Earth, Wind and Fire and and the the funk uh, of the future. Uh, what do you guys think? What Andy said really resonated with me regarding the muddiness of especially the vocals in the production and. The reason I'm going to say yes is I think that what makes this album great is that Sly and the Family Stone were not afraid to leave behind that brightness and try looking at the other side of it and ha feeling, I think, empowered because of their success to be able to try and communicate that. Wow. Well said. Which I think opened the door for things like Marvin Gaye and, and Stevie Wonder. So I'm going to say yes. All right. Andy. Hmm, I keep coming back and forth in my head here because on paper, I should really like this record. I do appreciate its influence. I like Sly. But when you hold it up against like, you know, I mentioned Marvin Gaye and some of those other classic like 60s and 70s records, I just don't think it's nearly as exciting to me as those. I'm going to say no, but I wouldn't be upset if it made it in. Uh, well, apologies to, to Sly uh, and the entire Family Stone. For now, There's a Riot Going On is not in the Album Nerds Hall of Fame, but you know, listeners can make that dream happen. AlbumNerds.com and AlbumNerds.com slash Discord. 
Excuse me. I'd like to ask you a few questions. It's that time again on the show where we ask ourselves uh, a question. Uh, so today, of course, the topic of conversation is Rolling Stone magazine. But uh, what about the other magazines out there? Did you guys read a lot of magazines growing up? Which ones did you read? And is there anything you still read regularly today? Well, I did read Rolling Stone a little bit. I used to go to the library to, to check it out. and started out with a lot of the 60s and 70s bands I was into. I think the Doors, actually, I took that Doors issue out. It was one of the first things I took out of the library, if I recall correctly. And then, like, getting delivered to the house. I think I got Sports Illustrated and Sports Illustrated for Kids. I think we had, like, a Highlights, I want to say. And that was about it. I don't know. We didn't get a lot of magazines delivered. Did you guys? No, we didn't get any magazines. Any magazine reading was if I bought a copy of something or if I went to the library. Um, For me, Rolling Stone probably the most. At my college library, they had all the issues in bound volumes Mm -hmm. in the basement. And in between classes, that's where I would go. And I read all of them up till 90, whatever it was at the time. Wow. I mean, I didn't read every word, but I read the articles I was interested in, looked at the charts and all that, the billboard charts. And uh, through my college years, Rolling Stone Spin, Hits Magazine, which they had at the record store, it was like an insider trade mag about what what things were charting, what the trends were, and CMJ was another favorite. But they were all about music. And now I just use Wikipedia. <laughs> so, so you, how about you? you don't do any fantasy football magazines? No, it's all that's all online stuff these days. No. Yeah. It doesn't seem smart to get one of those anyway, because the rosters change so much. And, well, yeah. it's wrong tomorrow, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, we used to get a, a lot of magazines delivered to the house. You know, my dad used to get like car magazines and my mom got like decorating stuff, the country sampler and, and stuff like that. Mm, of course. Yeah, I used yeah. to like, although I I didn't get them a lot, but I, I liked like Mad Magazine and Cracked Magazine. And I feel like every issue I ever had got taken from me by a, by a teacher yeah. in school. <laughs> I never learned my lesson. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had to read most of my Mad Magazines at the barber shop I went oh, nice. to. He kept he kept those. Uh, he kept Playboys for the adults <laughs> that he had Mad Magazine really? to. Really? Nice. The barber yeah. shop. Wow. I mean, who, who wants to cut someone's hair when they're looking at boobs? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I might get distracted, Jeez. man. I don't know if I would trust a guy with a razor. <laughs> yeah, well, I get I get like GQ and Men's Health at the uh, at the barbershop, you know. So I might peruse those, but yeah, I don't, you know, pay much attention to magazines anymore. Uh, how about you? You still read magazines? Uh, what magazines influenced you growing up? Let us know. Uh, hit us on the socials. Hit us uh, on the albumnerds.com slash Discord. <laughs> All right. So I went with uh, basically the most obvious choice someone can ever make to pick an album of an artist on the cover of Rolling Stone, impactful artist, biggest selling album of all time. This is someone at the time that deserved to be on the cover of a national music magazine. So we're going to get into Thriller from November of 1982. Let's get started with my favorite song on the album, Human Nature. Uh, if 
they say why, you can also tell them cha 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 cha. Also a valid response. Yes. I'm going to start doing that. So, Human Nature was the fifth single from this nine track album. I believe seven singles were issued from this album. Wow. <laughs> so, this one was performed by and written by members of Toto, you know, Africa, Rosanna, uh, with Jackson providing the vocals. My understanding is they also did the instrumentation, the guitar stuff on Beat It, and only the solo was Eddie Van Halen. But this song was originally written by the keyboardist Steve Percaro of Toto, and the song's inspiration came from a conversation he had with his daughter after she was hit by a boy at school. So it was kind of like, that's human nature. You know, he's explaining why people do what they do. She said, why do, why yeah. do you mean this way? <laughs> why he do me this way? And, <laughs> and then songwriter John Bettis was brought in to rewrite the verses, shifting the lyrics to be about passerbys in New York City, the nightlife, you know, interacting with people and why they do what they do. The three words I used to describe this album were he, he, and who. It, the <laughs> says it all. Oh, you can, you can. I know it does. I mean, if you do, if you go he, he, who, people know you're talking about Michael Jackson. Uh, I, I also could say Quincy Jones genius. I mean, what he was able to do and get Michael to do with the layering of vocals, with the atmospherics on some of these songs that are meh in terms of just what they are at the base. Between the two of them, they were able to make them sound special, all of them, even the the weaker songs. It was the first album I really learned to love, loving the album experience. I mean, I grew up with my dad listening to whole records, and I'd look at the liner notes, but this was my first that I bought. And I would listen to the whole thing. I'd wait for my songs for tracks four, five, and six, which are <laughs> Thriller, Beat It, and Billie Jean. But I enjoyed the other songs, and I would anticipate it. So when the when the album ended with uh, The Lady in My Life, I'd flip it over and start over with Want to Be Starting Something and uh, read the lyrics. And I mean, to the point where I remember reading the lyric sheet and looking at the drawings that Michael Jackson did. And I was sitting in a chair with my dad and he was a big Paul McCartney fan. So the weakest song on the album, in my opinion, The Girl Is Mine, we, as a little kid, I was probably like 10. I remember sitting there and my dad would sing the Paul McCartney parts and I would sing the Michael parts. <laughs> oh man. Even the talking oh, part where he's like, I'm a lover, not a fighter. <laughs> so, <laughs> I told you. I think I told you. But then, um, <laughs> But then Thriller comes on right after that, and then I'd be like up and dancing. So it was then 15 minutes of, of trying to moonwalk on a carpeted floor. All right, so <laughs> why don't we let you guys talk, and let's listen to a little bit of probably the song that, that really kicked it all off, especially after that Motown 25 performance, Billie Jean. I just wanted to hear that song again, so thanks for playing it. That's one I never get sick of somehow. My three words to describe this record are how to become king. This was what really put MJ at the top of the charts and kept him there for 
you know, the next decade or so, arguably. Yeah, it also it also exposed his cracks and I think accentuated some of the eccentricities that grew out of control and sort of ruined him and his public persona, at least for me. Like, I haven't listened to this album in probably 20 years, all the way, you know, like actually listening to it. And I still know every hoo-hoo and hee-hee, every breath, it's like part of me because it was my first record that I loved. But I think this exposure and this superstardom destroyed him as a human being. Yeah, you could say the beginning of the end in some ways too, when you kind of reach that peak, you know, it's all it's all downhill from there. Um, but yeah, you know, I, th- I think listening back to this now, I think the production is what really stood out to me too, as you mentioned, dude, like the tracks that aren't great, I think Quincy Jones and MJ, I'm sure they lay around enough stuff to make them so sonically interesting. You mentioned that uh, Paul McCartney track, which I agree is totally cringy. Dog on girl is mine. I mean, f- first of all, at the time, I was like, no uh, lady's going to pick Paul McCartney over cool Michael Jackson. I'm sorry, Paul. I was very wrong. You should be any lady's choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hard to imagine them fighting over some, some pretty young thing. But. The doggone song is cringe. <laughs> Well, I think that song would be laughably terrible on any other record, but I think on Thriller, it's like acceptable. Right. Maybe because you know Thriller's coming up next to the next track, but you can get through it. Like it's digestible for me at least. And there's a lot of songs on here that are like middle of the road, but I think Quincy puts them over the top for me. And there's just so many great little sounds on this record, like so many good little guitar riffs and Michael's percussion uh singing and and backing vocals like throughout the record just they're just layered in perfectly everywhere i think that's really what makes it such a great listening experience and it just it just moves like it's the whole thing is just from one thing to the next and just feels like kind of like a movie and that there's always something happening but well something that any good producer wouldn't want is a bunch of breaths and background noises that the artist is doing when they're <laughs> singing but he they're accentuated here and it kind of at the time you didn't hear that you didn't hear like all those little weird expressions that michael did in his vocal performances yeah totally he makes those weird little sounds hiccups highlights (laughs) of the record (laughs) yeah they focus on him and yeah he just like a yeah his he he's are at on a level on this record man i mean they're like he's like singing them at some points you know it's it's amazing all right so why don't we uh talk about the title track and uh probably one of the most iconic halloween songs (laughs) in existence and music videos that's true i mean monster mash had a pretty banging video but we'll go with thriller let's check it out Yeah, so Thriller uh, was written by uh, English uh, songwriter Rod Tepperton, uh, who had also written uh, Rock With You uh, and Off the Wall. It basically celebrates Jackson's love for film and, and particularly uh, horror films. And uh, of course, uh, Vincent Price um, does a spoken word part a- at the end of the, the track. The The rhythm section is actually completely electronic. It's just a, it's a drum machine. And actually that, that bass line uh, is also a, a synthesizer. Got it's just a great song. People always talk about the video, and I, I 
I mean, it's obviously an important video, um, but I, I think in a lot of ways it overshadows just how great of a song it is. And uh, well, anyway, the, the three words I, I chose to describe the album are three thrilling songs. So, you, you, I mean, you've got these, you know, amazing tracks, Thriller, Beat It, and, and Billie Jean, you know, they, they all come in a row. I mean, they're certainly better than than anything that was on the Off the Wall album. And the, the subject matters are unique for pop songs. And I mean, you might think that, you know, Thriller is corny or something, but I, I appreciate that. You know, I, I like, you know, doing a song about watching scary movies. Uh, Beat It, you know, is is unique, you know, sort of gang fighting and, and stuff like that. Um, yeah. So, you know, these three songs stand out. And I think so much that uh, unfortunately it makes the other songs feel kind of pedestrian. You know, if I'm going to be negative at all about the album, I think that sort of hurts my view uh, of the album as a whole. Um, although, you know, Human Nature is also, you know, I think a, a fantastic track. And I think the more and more I listen to the album, um, that one stands out, particularly his his vocal uh, performance. So, you know, so four standout cuts, if you will. And then, you know, Wanna Be Starting Something and PYT, those sound like tracks that could have been on Off the Wall. Well, the goal was to have hits to have huge hits because in michael jackson's eyes off the wall was a failure well back in 1979 i got real depressed when my off the wall album just got one lousy grammy nomination <laughs> so just one <laughs> so i think Jesus. he wanted hit songs and so that's what they were going for it wasn't necessarily an album in that uh creative way the beatles were doing later in their career what that wasn't yeah. the point no i, I get it so, you know, I think this is this shows a little overloaded with this, but I'm going to go ahead and, and nominate this. I, I rejected Off the Wall because I think this is the masterpiece. This is the one. So here we go. I almost started this segment off with that instead of, and then talk about the record because I think this is not going to be difficult. Guys, say yes, mm-hmm. and let's move on. <laughs> Hmm. Oh, bullshit. <laughs> I'm still holding some grudge after the Off the Wall nomination got shot down. I don't know, I don't know if that's a, a better complete album. It might, might still feel that way today. But I do love Thriller. This is I, one of the few records I still own on vinyl. I listen to it fairly regularly <laughs> because it's so much fun. Um, but I will say yes because I think both records are great and I, I love MJ and it's a big part of who I am as a music fan. So, yes for me. Yeah, I, I agree with Andy. I, I think as far as an album I'd put on and, you know, sort of want to be taken on a sonic journey, I think I prefer Off the Wall in that way. But but again, there's nothing on that album that's as good as, you know, Thriller, Billie Jean and, and Beat It. So, yeah, I mean, this is this is obvious. This is, a, this is a great album and it belongs in our Hall of Fame. One lousy Grammy for Off the Wall and no album nerds Hall of Fame, but Thriller. Thriller was the winner for you, Mr. Jackson. Congratulations. All right, so Michael Jackson Thriller. Ever hear of it? Go check it out. All right, so we you know, went through the, the history of Rolling Stone and saw all these uh, iconic covers. Uh, what, did, what did we learn? You know, Rolling Stone, big magazine going for a big audience. Obviously, have a lot of big names on there, and I think that's evidenced by the three records that we picked today that you know, all got nominated for the hall. A lot of controversy on the cover. Controversy and sex sells. I guess that's probably my biggest two takeaways from, 
I'm flipping through hundreds of Rolling Stone covers. I learned that but the world of music and music discovery is better off without centralized publications telling you what's good, what isn't good, only sharing the things they feel like. Uh, that's a nice guideline to start with, but the ability for people to go find anything and everything that they want to listen to and explore. Uh, and then podcasts like this, lots of rec- you know, music fans get chances to talk about what they love and hope to turn other people on to it. I think it still has a place, but I'm glad that it isn't the spotlight anymore. Yeah, I think you're you're right about that because I, I think those those reviews had a lot of power. Like even for me, when I would be reading reviews, yeah. and, and they would pan stuff. And it's funny how they always do like their retroactive reviews, you know, and it just right. points out how bad they were at you know sort of recognizing how significant <laughs> some of these these records Sometimes, were. Sometimes, yeah. Plus, it's kind of something weird about like having the singular name of. Rolling Stone and all these various people, you know, reporting underneath that name over decades right. and decades. I like to think of the Rolling Stone being the same in the seventies as they are in the two thousands. Very different. It's like totally different things. <laughs> um, but I still have a lot of credence with like their lists and stuff. I mean, those when they put out those top albums or top songs lists, like people still still talk about that. It's still relevant. Yeah, and that's one to grow on. I'm your density. All right, boys and girls, it's time once again to hold hands and gather around the magical wheel of musical destiny and see what fate has in store for us next week. Your musical destiny is to sit back and unwind because it's summertime. This week, you will explore albums containing the songs of summer. What albums elicit the days of summer for you? Songs of summer. Thank God we got this before the summer ended. <laughs> before fall. Yeah. I would have to, we would have to remove it from the wheel. <laughs> yeah, so albums featuring songs that are summer songs that make you think of summer or, you know, give you that summertime feeling like perhaps Summertime by DJ Jazz and Jeff and the Fresh Prince. That's a little on the nose. <laughs> it's some, some, summertime, some, some, summertime. There you go. Okay. All right. What's your favorite summertime album? What else are you listening to? Let us know. Join fellow album nerds on Discord at albumnerds.com slash Discord. You can email us at podcast at albumnerds.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and threads at Album Nerds. And please subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast app. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do so via PayPal at albumnerds.com slash support. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hee <laughs> hee for joining us on the Album Nerds Podcast. Catch you next time with some songs of summer. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week. For no mere mortal can resist the evil of the album nerds. <laughs> 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 Ah! <laughs>